0: go ahead and turn on our recording so we can officially get this party started and so we have Stella Collins with us and I have been a big fan of Stella for many many moons and she is the most lovely person you know to speak with <laughs> and like I, I think I said this in a, a LinkedIn comment it's like I could just sit back and listen to Stella just talk you know, because it's always, it's always wisdom coming from Stella. And as Stella says, uh, her commitment is better learning for a better world. And I can't think of a better way to kick off our day. So in the chat, go ahead and let me know if you are um, a new person to our coffee chats and also that, keep in mind that we are recording this chat and so that way we'll be able to send it off to you later on as promised. And uh, new people coming in. Hello, John, Deborah, Fatim, Fatimna. I'm That's a to-
1: good, good effort. Fatina. think of the number 10 in the middle of my name, Fatina.
0: Fatimna, got it. All right, thank you. Juanita, thank you for coming back. I appreciate it. All right. And Stella, just uh, just for the record here, uh, Stella is an acknowledged expert on the practical application of science-based learning to business performance and is author of the sellout book, Neuroscience for Learning and Development. So please find her book, purchase her book. It's a lovely read. Uh, As she inspires audiences at international conferences and is regularly invited to guests on roundtable discussions such as this one. And she has a clear understanding of the challenges faced by organizations in upskilling and reskilling their people at all levels, especially with digital change being so high on the agenda. And that is so true. When we think about everything that the pandemic has brought us, where we are in the course of history right now, I think that everything that Stella brings to the table is critically important. So thank you, Stella, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you
2: very much for inviting
0: me. Yeah, it's, it's lovely, it is lovely. Uh, okay, so I'm going to, I've got a poll here, and I'm just curious as to where everybody feels their knowledge is, how deep is your understanding of neuroscience as it applies to L&D? So go ahead and help me out. I'm really curious as to how you guys feel about your um, information in regards to neuroscience and where you feel you're at. And I see the results coming in. I feel like I understand the term neuroscience but not sure about its application. Some of you, I love the honesty here. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm here I'm here to learn. That's what. I, that's what we're all about. And we have a few people that feel comfortable and I'll show these results here in just a second.
2: I I think it's really curious because, you know, you sort of, however comfortable you feel with neuroscience. I mean, I feel comfortable with parts of it and there are some parts I'm deeply uncomfortable about because I really don't know some things about some things, you know, you sort of, and, and the more, you know the more you realize you don't know.
0: Right, exactly, exactly. And so there are the results. So it seems uh, we've got majority of our people feel like they understand the term neuroscience, but just not really sure about the L&D application. You know, how can we use this term? And in all honesty, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of confusion around neuroscience, isn't there, Stella?
2: Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think, um, you know, it means different things to different people. So for some people, it's very much just the, the physiology of your brain and how your brain actually, you know, connects together and the sort of um, the physical side of it. I actually define it more broadly. For me, neuroscience is any of the sciences that kind of relate to brains, behaviors, and, and people, really. So for me, it's, it's kind of, you know, the neuroscience is the physical of how does your brain connect, and I am very interested in that. But how that actually affects what we do. Um, but also I'm really interested in cognitive science and I'm really interested in kind of social science and kind of blending all those things together so that you come up with a, a much more holistic picture. Because I think if you just focus on, on the, the squishy stuff, you don't get the full the full picture. So I I've quite a broad definition of neuroscience.
0: So are there differences there that we need to take into consideration when you think about Uh, neuroscience versus cognitive sciences? What, What are some of the key differences that we need to pay attention to?
2: So they're all sciences. And I think that's the key thing. It's about understanding, you know, science in itself is all about, you know, making hypotheses and testing them and experimenting. And then, you know, being, you know, if your hypotheses fail, or they uh succeed it doesn't really matter because that way you've you've advanced you'd advance the knowledge you advance the learning so I think the the thing I'm most interested in is that we use the science of learning which is many different types of sciences and as I say pure neuroscience is very much about you know the blood and guts of it it's about how the neurons connect it's about how our nerves connect it's about how we um you know, the neurotransmitters that float around. It's about the kind of the the electrical waves that float around around that are, you know, pulsating throughout our brains. But cognitive science is much more about understanding, you know, well, how do we think? How does memory work? How does learning work? How does... um, So you can't examine that in the same physical way. Not the same physical way. Like you can't look inside somebody's brain and see what's happening, but you make hypotheses from their behaviours. And then social sciences—you know—how do people work in in groups? How do how does group behavior work? And again, you know, for learning, that's all hugely hugely important. And then you know now people are beginning to add in sort of parts of artificial intelligence are coming into that because actually, you know, we're creating neural networks with not with brains anymore, but with you know actual kind of computer elements. So it's thinking about all the different aspects of it. But for me, it's. It all comes down to how do people learn better, and, and what's the science behind that?
0: And I think that it's always a moving target, isn't it? Yeah, yeah because there is just so much that we we don't know and we don't understand. And through reading uh, John Medina's book, you know, Brain yeah, it's rules, a great book. Yes, uh, there he's very clear on what we do not understand. And even that what we think we understand, we don't really understand. Absolutely. And I think one of the real things
2: with with sort of thinking about science is most science is conducted in laboratories or in very specific situations, asking very specific questions. It's not very often, it's not easy for for pure science to look at the real world application of things. So you can take a a piece of research and some things you can apply quite easily to the real world but some things you can you have to pull pieces of research from different places and then make a sort of a general hypothesis about well this is probably how things work but you can you can rarely use a single piece of neuroscience or a single piece of science to say this is absolutely how everything will work because the context is so different very often you know if you think you're being asked in a brain scan to 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 read you know they, they might look at the science of reading If you're being asked to read when you're in a brain scanner that's a very different concept to right. if you're being asked to read while you're on the train or you know right. you're lying in bed reading you know and, and and what's the change that could be different based on reading in a scanner or reading in the
0: real world right right well yeah i have a question for the group and i thought i'm going to do a little uh Uh, a flip on the question. Usually what we do is we'll ask people, we'll say, okay, what can we do in order to enhance the learning environment for our humans, you know, in our organization, so that, you know, it really does help learning stick. Now I'm going to flip the question on everybody. What can we do to reduce learning? So let's put a different spin on this. Let's think about this from the opposite direction. So we think about, let's do this because we really want to reduce the learning effort. (laughs) What is it that we can do to make sure that learning doesn't happen? Okay, Amanda, thank you. Shaming, yes. Let's put them all on the spot, shall we? I think that's a good idea. What else, add distractions? Oh, plenty
2: of distractions. That's a great one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Give people the multitask. Too much work. Changing the message. Oh, I like that when I mean, you flip the messaging around. Yeah, let let's feed. Let's do it through the fire hose.
2: Yeah, let's just feed content at them. That would be a really really great
0: idea, wouldn't it? Right. Too much content. Too much too quickly. What else can we do? No context. Text heavy PowerPoint. PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> Let's let's put all the words on one PowerPoint. Uh, No application. Yep. No time for reflection. reflection. No
2: time for practice.
0: Right. Read the slides. Yes. Read the slides. I was uh, watching something earlier this week, kind of an intro to something. And there was a person who was on the screen. It was a recording person on the screen and PowerPoint in the background. And they were reading exactly what was on PowerPoint. It's like- And be- I think
2: that's that's a really good example, Shannon, of, of you know, how really not to do learning, read the slides, because you're doing the work, but learning needs to happen in the brain of the other person. And that's so often what happens in in, you know, if you want to ruin learning, is do the work for people instead of letting them do the thinking, do the practicing, do the testing do the even do the muddling through even muddling through is better than than nothing but the more work that the trainer or the facilitator or the lecturer whoever they are the more work they do the less the learner does and the less learning actually happens
0: right right and i love all of this so this leads me to my question for you stella which you have the basic b-a-s-i C in capital letters ways to reduce learning how we fail to connect learning to people so what what are the what are your basic what's the basic Ooh,
2: now you're, now you're testing me because that means I have to remember my own mnemonic <laughs> <laughs> so I might have to test you back on there but I, I know the first one is boredom you know avoid boredom people don't learn when they're bored the only thing when they learn when they're bored is how to do something different so how can we make people feel connected and engaged with learning and engaged with you know finding out something new you know it's all about raising curiosity and making them motivated so avoid boredom so all the basic things are things to avoid um the a of Ah, avoid ab- abstract. I think is that abstract? Yeah. Avoid yeah. abstraction. So it's really hard for our brains to process abstract information because when we process abstract information, that's the front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, which uses a lot of energy. Um, it's tiring to use. We can't use it for very long. And when we can actually produce something that's concrete, that the rest of our brain can start to process. So if you th- use something that's multisensory, if you describe things that have sounds and feelings and colorful that allows more of our brain to process it. And also we then have a you know a physical feel for something. So avoiding the abstract and making things concrete is is really, really helpful in terms of learning. And these are, you know, these are very basic brain, brain things. Um where are we yes avoid stress. I think somebody here said, you know, um yep. what did they say? Yep. Something mm-hmm. about you know, yep. but yeah. You know, when we're stressed, we, do, we, we might learn to run away from something if we're really frightened, but stress really ruins learning because we just get this you know s- set of neurotransmitters that suppress learning and just make sure that we can run away or hide or whatever it is we might be doing. So avoiding stress and then avoiding information overload. And somebody's already said, you know, <laughs> just throw loads and loads of information at people. When we have information overload, our brains just cannot take in that much information they are they are limited you know our brains use energy they're like they're like any other you know a machine in that sense they're like your legs your muscles you can only do so much work and you can train your brain to take in a bit more but you can't train it to take in everything you other people throw at it so I think we always overestimate how much people can can absorb and take in and then the final one is the kind of cognitive overload you know are you overloading cognitive ability to be able to pay attention to be able to memorize to be able to process the information that's coming in and that could be all sorts of information you can feel overwhelmed from you know a, a, an overstimulation of stuff but it, you want to make sure that it's relevant and that people can focus on what they need to focus on rather than it being being an overwhelm mm-hmm.
0: so now how do we how do we convince stakeholders? And I see here the question from Maureen. And Maureen, this is a really good question here. And to, to narrow it down for you, Stella, it is how can how can we work with the stakeholders to help them understand the recommendations that we're making? So what are your suggestions when the stakeholder tells us to do everything that we've listed? Right? Because that's usually the mandate that comes down is like we've got an eight-hour. One day training course now I want you to turn it into two hours virtual, right? And <laughs> yeah. so now how, how can we talk to the stakeholders and say, well, no, that's not good for learning, it's not good for people's brains? How do we have that conversation?
2: So I think start with start with no. I think okay. that's a really good place start. to start. Um, give them an example of something they've learned. Ask them, you know, well, how long did it take you to learn X, Y, or Z? And when they say, especially something that they're perhaps an expert at. And when they say, well, it's taken me 10 years to learn this or, you know, 15 years or even, you know, a week. And you say, so you're expecting other people to learn what it took you a long time. You're expecting other people to learn all this in a really short space of time. So that's one thing is to throw it back. But I would also say test it. So actually say to them, okay, let's try it out. You know, let's test what happens. Let's test their memory, test, test them before they go into this training and we'll test their memory when they come out. So that's really good. But let's test their memory again, you know, the next day and maybe a week later. And they'll find that actually they re- retain very little of that information. And then not only do they need to retain the information, then they need to do something with it. So it's about sort of, thinking about what is the science of learning? Because first of all, you've got to have some, you've got to be motivated. Then you need to have some information. Then you need to do something with that information, make it real, put it in your own context. Then you need, if it's skills, you need to practice and you need to practice and practice and practice and practice until it becomes a habit. So I think having some knowledge of how the learning process works allows you to challenge back and say to the stakeholder, well, you know that's just not going to work i can i can throw information at people but it won't stick if we don't have the time to reflect and to practice and to you know really absorb the information
0: mm-hmm. and i think those are all really good points it's it's a difficult conversation to have isn't it you know when they when the business doesn't understand learning the way we understand learning. And I've always been of the position that they don't need to, what they need is help. So they need help connecting those dots. We don't expect, I don't expect the the president, the CEO, or the sales director to understand brain science. That's not the expectation.
2: No, but I think the question is to ask them. So what would you like people to do at the end of this, you know, whether it's a week or a two hour session, what would you like them to be able to do rather than, you know, what would you like them to be able to know? And if they can prove that at the end of those two hours, they can do whatever it is they've been asked to do, then, then that's great. And can they still do it, you know, a week later and a month later or have they stopped doing it? But that's why I think, you know, that's why science is useful, because you can you test things in science. So I would say, yeah, say, okay, let's let's test it. Let's see if we can get it. It is possible. It's something somebody could learn in two hours, Mm -hmm. but it's not very likely. Right.
0: So now let's talk about research. You brought up research. And one of the uh, the term I think I used in the event descriptor was neuro fairy dust. I liked yours better where it said neuro hype, you know, so how, do, there's just so much out there, Stella. So how do we know what information is good or which one is leading us down a snake oil path? How do we know?
2: You'll never know for certain unless you test it and if it right. works, it works. Um, but I think there's, there's, a, there's a set of questions you can ask when somebody comes along and says, you know, I, I'm going to prove to you that you know, neuroscience works. A, there's no such, you know, you can't just say neuroscience. It's something specific you've got to talk about. But then there's a set of questions when somebody says a piece of research that shows something. There's a set of questions you can ask. And first of all, you say, well, who did the research? And if it was, you know, a prestigious university or even maybe a very big organization, you know, like a pharmaceutical company or an organization that's done some internal research, that might be okay. You know, but if it was just you know you or me saying we're doing research, we probably weren't doing neuroscience-based research at all because we haven't got access to the sorts of equipment you need to do neuroscience. Um, what's on the agenda of the person who's telling you mm. about the research? What's on the agenda of the person doing the research? There was a huge pile of research done. Um, I think it was in the 1960s and 70s, showing that sugar was good and fat was bad. But surprise, surprise, a lot of it was actually funded by sugar companies, you know? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Where was it published? So if you see something, you know, science is generally published in scientific publications, it's peer reviewed. Um, And then it appears in the press. If something appears, first of all, on on the local news channel or even the national news channel, and it hasn't appeared in some other document, in a proper peer-reviewed scientific document, that's probably not valid either. So if it's just somebody who's published a blog, where did they get that knowledge from? Where did they get their research from? Um, When was it published just because something is brand new doesn't mean it's valid or viable but that also doesn't mean it's wrong um, and if something was published a long time ago has it been has it been superseded since then or is there something newer coming up um, and then how was the science done you know was it a proper scientific so a lot of people say they've done research and research is you know a very disparate thing. A lot of people say they've done research. Well, what they mean is they've done some interviews. That's not scientific research. It's a kind of research, but not scientific research. And it's certainly not neuroscience research. Um, So how was the science done? Was it done? One of the challenges with neuroscience is that it's very hard to get big cohorts. So often it's very small numbers of people that are being researched. So yes, you can often say, okay, so if we've got a good percentage of people and they're you know, you've you kind of selected for them across a range of different um, diverse kind of uh, subjects that might be valid, but did you just only choose people who are, you know, 25 years old, probably 25 years old, male, well educated, and white? That's where a lot of research happens. So thinking about how is the research done. And then the last one is, you know, what's the result? Are oh, is the person telling you that this is a magic bullet that's going to solve all your problems? In which case? it's probably not valid and what, right. what you could, you need to kind of ask all those questions and that will begin to start you know it'll either make me ring alarm bells or it'll make you think no they do seem to know what they're talking about but it's very unlikely that one single piece of research is going to be what you're looking for you're looking for a, a body of
0: evidence mm-hmm. and I think that that's good practice in general yeah. when yeah. we're talking about research practices And Amanda Ray, I, I like what you're saying here. It says you look for meta analysis, systematic reviews and literature reviews. And that's what you're looking for. So Amanda, I don't know if you want to come off mute, but I would love to hear uh, some more background about that comment. Yeah. So Amanda, you're on? I sh- yeah, I can come on real quick. Hi, um, I'm leaving my camera off. Um, okay. Uh, but um, yeah, so what those typically do is that they have parameters by which that they're looking for literature on. And normally, if, especially if you're looking for something that's more current, you normally don't go any further than seven to 10 years back and 10 is probably pushing it. Yeah. But you can look for um, things that have parameters of, They were looking at the everything that Stella just spoke about, but they're integrating it all for the consumer to read. Um, And it makes doing that work a whole lot easier, especially for those that may not have background in doing any sort of uh, applied or um, actual, uh, not applied research, so
2: yeah thank and you that, that that's why good good books um, are, are valuable if they if they're well researched books that's why they're valuable because somebody else has done has taken that kind of scientific research they even they may not have read all the papers but they've kind of done that meta research by pulling together different elements and actually looking at you know what's what's the what's the general consensus saying
0: Right. so
2: Like John Medina's book, for instance.
0: Right. Right. Which we know comes from a trusted source versus because he's not he doesn't have an axe to grind. Right. Like you said. Well, he's got a book to
2: sell, I suppose. Right. (laughs)
0: Other than that, other than that, I suppose. Right. Which is the your example about the um, sugar industry. I think that that uh, I think that happens more often than we would consider.
2: Yeah because even universities are funded and where does their funding come from okay. now you could you could end up you could end up getting into sort of like conspiracy theory land and <laughs> not believing anything because somebody's always got you know a purpose a reason for doing something but it's looking at that wider picture all and, and not trying to yeah
0: right looking at it all yeah. okay so now let's think about application so when we think about um, so we've done this research about neuroscience so now what are how are we now going to apply this is it as simple as just taking in mind uh like ruth clark her uh psychological process of learning so there's that so is there is there something else that we should be doing something else we should be paying attention to
2: i think we should in in terms of learning you mean yes Mm -hmm. yeah i think one of the things that there's a lot of research in terms of learning in terms of how our brains learn. And that's really, really important. Clearly, you know, it is our brains who are, who are often making the changes. But I think one of the things that we often forget is actually the the bigger picture that I'm coming back to bigger picture again. But actually, how is that connected to our bodies? You know, we're not we're not disconnected from our bodies. So one of the things we we often try to do in in work is give people a lot of cognitive learning, but not actually help them to improve. Embody that learning in any way. So we give them a lot of, you know, information, often abstract information. But actually, how can we make that learning more real for people? And one way is to kind of give them physical connection to it. But also things like, you know, we tend to do training sitting down. We allow people to sit in a classroom or sit digitally. But actually, what would happen if you had people moving around and walking and actually a, stimulating themselves to have more oxygen getting to their brain, more blood getting to their brain, but also that physical connection with the learning, which is a much more human way of, of learning than sitting still and listening. That's, that's a very unnatural way of learning. So I think it's about thinking about the embodiment of learning more. And then, you know, we're beginning to understand more and more about the, the gut, the gut brain that we appear to have our, our Our guts have a huge number of neurons in them, a really large number of neurons in them. And there's more and more evidence happening that, you know, what's happening in our gut actually can, you know, we say let's let's listen to our guts. But actually there's more and more evidence that what's happening in there can actually impact, particularly on our uh, sort of psychological state. You know, how do we feel? It has a huge impact. And how we feel also affects how we learn.
0: That is fascinating. Tell me more.
2: Whoa. Okay. So it's, it's not an area I've explored enormously yet, but one of the things I, I am very fascinated by is the, the gut microbial, the, the kind of the biome, the, the environment we have in our guts seems to be very uh, important for our psychological well-being. So they've done some really interesting experiments where they've had depressed Usually rats or mice, depressed rats or mice, and cheery rats or mice, or perfectly happy rats or mice, and then they've swapped their gut contents, and you can actually turn a depressed rat into a happy rat, or a happy rat into just by switching the stuff in their guts. Wow! And and it's it's a hugely complex, and you know there are clearly some people who understand it far better than I do, but you know that affects your psychological well-being, which also affects how ready you are to to learn uh,
0: so that's really interesting and i love this whole conversation it's especially when you talk about movement you know so i see chris's comment there in the chat about um are we saying that embodying the learning can be as simple as walking around while something is happening and what kind of things could be happening
2: so I think one of the things, you can you can embody learning in a very deliberate way. So you can deliberately anchor physical actions to particular pieces of information. So one of the things I sometimes do te- is teach people to build a brain and actually get them to physically act it out. So they've not only got the words about brain and how brains work, but they've also got physical memories of it. And it's about making your memories stronger, because when we're moving, we've not just got you know cognitive kind of memories and senses we've got that kind of the, the sense of movement that goes with it so when um you know people do things like they learn through listening to songs that can help you but if you're physically moving that uh, you can actually use those movements to increase the learning because you you've got more memory uh, but particularly if you decide to physically act something out you know you can you can You could have a process, and instead of telling people the process, you could actually get them to be the process, so you can do it very deliberately. But even if you learn as you walk, as you stand, you're still increasing the flow of blood to your brain. So you're still going to get a benefit from doing that. One of the things I've noticed in in training programs is if you encourage people to stand up, they are much more inclined to ask questions. They tend to ask much more open questions because they can begin to relax.
0: Oh, Yes.
2: Yes. And, 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 and If you think about training as it typically happened in classrooms, I think actually Zoom is, is good in some ways because this training typically happened in classrooms. The trainer stood at the front and everybody else sat. So they weren't connected. There was no connection between them. And, and these are some of the things that are, you know, that they're, they're, they're perhaps a little more esoteric than uh, some of the obvious connections. But why would I listen to somebody who's standing above me and talking at me as opposed to listening to somebody who might be walking alongside me and can see my point of view?
0: Oh, that's interesting. So, so that's about perception too, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And empathy. and Right, right. On all the things that we say should happen in a, in a learning environment, but now we know that there's real reason. It's not – a lot of us do these things because – We know it's intuitively, we know it's the right thing to do, right? And I think it's good now to have, there's actually a reason behind it.
2: Yeah, and somebody's just asked, you know, how how can you do these things when your classes are virtual? And yes, there are definite challenges around being virtual because we haven't got the same amount of connectivity, but there are some quite good things. For instance, this chat going on here in the chat window, that is meaning everybody it's more democratizing when you're virtual, because everybody can contribute in the chat window, whereas if you've got a room and you know the trainer is dominating or you know, some people are dominating, it's much harder for people to um, to interrupt. Somebody wants you to expand on their that. question.
0: Yes. Yeah, but can you she's... can do exercises in the virtual space.
2: And absolutely. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I was, I was doing a session last week where I was literally teaching people to build a brain where they had to put their hand up. That's your brain stem. Then you make a fist and that's kind of the, uh, the, the midbrain, we include the limbic system where you've got memory and emotion and things. Then you put your other hand over the top and that's the cortex where you've got perception and, uh, thinking and motor skills, so you know you can actually do physical things, or you can, you know, you don't have to sit there the whole time. You can say to people, right now, go and you know walk to the end of your house or the end of the street or the end of the corridor, or wherever it is,
0: and then come back with a new idea.
2: Right. You don't ha- you don't have to stay sitting the whole time, do you?
0: No, and I love that. I don't know how many the rest of you while you were doing that demonstration. I was kind of I was doing it myself, you know. So I think that that's a great lead. And Mary, I see you there in the chat. Can you expand on your question? Absolutely, Mary. So if you want to expand on your question, unmute yourself.
3: Um, first off, we don't use cameras in our virtual classes. We, we teach customers. We're not teaching our employees, okay? We are a software provider, so we're teaching our customers how to use our software. So we don't use cust- uh, cameras because a lot of times they don't have the bandwidth to support that, mm-hmm. okay? So you don't have that whole looking in the face thing that we had when it was classroom training. Uh, we have not done classroom training in over 10 years because they stopped coming.
1: Um,
3: All right. Okay. So, because it's too much time out of their work day. It was a week away from work and they don't have time to do that. All right. So we have over the years um, shrunk it down, chunked it down to 90 minutes. So if you come to a virtual class, you're with me for 90 minutes. Okay. And in that 90 minutes, we do our best to share our desktop with you and say, hey, Shannon, here, take the mouse. And Shannon's like, sorry, I'm busy. I can't do that. Because they are also working while they are taking our classes. So I am loving everything that Stella is saying and shaking my head at the same time and trying so hard not to be a negative Nancy or Nellie or any other N-word, negative Nettie there, that's a the name I don't usually hear. But trying to figure out how to incorporate this into this very specific situation that I love it, live that words live in so that I can help my team get better at what they do.
2: sounds like you're doing some really good things already because you're, you've split it into 90 minute sessions, which is good. And you could split it even further if you wanted, but you know, people can't sustain much more than that in terms of earning. I think the challenge, as you say, when people are actually working and attempting to learn at the same time, that becomes a, an organizational challenge, I think. And people need to recognize that you can't, you can't multitask, you know, people think they can, but they really can't. So I think it's about setting the context of if you're going to, and you know, you may not have the control over this, but there is something you can do to create expectations and say, well, the expectation is when you're in my session, that we work together. And the more things you give them to do, the more they will come with an expectation that I have to do things in that in that class. So actually I can't be doing something else because I actually will be asked to do something and it's embarrassing right. if I can't do it. Right. So I think you're doing some really good things already.
0: Yeah, and I think that, that could, that's a conversation that could take a whole nother hour, couldn't it? About setting yeah. the expectations. And we had actually, and um, Mary, if you send me an email after we're done here, we had actually had a uh, coffee chat a couple of weeks ago about communicating change and how do we communicate with our with our learners? How do we communicate expectations? You know, how can we get that that sort of messaging across? and if you send me an email i'll send you the follow up that went along with that chat that was one of our regular friday coffee chats so but i think that like stella said it really is about setting that expectation isn't it which is again a conversation that we could really go deeper into for sure for sure but i like what you're saying here stella about you know it it's about helping that learning environment regardless of whether or not it's virtual or live right and getting people out of their heads I, and it, it seems um it seems like it fights against each other we want to get people out of their heads in order to get information into their heads <laughs>
1: well
2: yes actually but in a way one of the biggest things i think that is really important Comes from the neuroscience of learning is actually what you want to do is connect with what people already know. So one of the the most useful practical things you can do when you're attempting to you know help somebody learn something is ask them first what do you already know, so that you effectively warm up that part of their brain. You you kind of excite the brain in the parts where there is relevance, so that when you start putting or attempting to put new information in, that part of the brain is already excited. It's already warmed up. It's already got connections. Whereas if you don't ask that, people are then spending time thinking, where do I, not consciously, but where do I file this stuff? But that, that, that question of what do you already know actually gets them
0: already warmed up. So if you connect the learning to something that they already know, which we know, again as L and D professionals, we should we should know to do that. But yeah. the reasoning behind that could it be that if we're waking up that part of the brain of things that we already know, and then introducing them to a concept that is connected, does the brain make that connection? Yeah, that storage yeah. connection.
2: It's it's using the connections that are already there. So actually, yeah, I mean, and the storage is incredibly complex because it has to kind of, it, it yeah, I probably can't go into storage in, <laughs> in
0: this <laughs> session
2: because we'd be here forever. But yes, you're you you're using the connections that are already there, and you're strengthening the connections that are already there, and then you're putting something new in. Whereas if you introduce a completely new concept without anybody thinking about what else, even what else do I know that similar is useful. But if you introduce a completely new concept, then you've got to create entirely new connections. And that, again, is using more energy. Um, those connections are very wobbly and weak and they need reinforcing far more, which is why it's much easier to learn something that you already know something about than it is to learn. You know, if I were to go in and start learning, I don't know, Hindustani that would be really difficult for me because I've got no connections to that. Whereas I've moved to Belgium and learning a little bit of Flemish, there's connections because I already know some English and English and Flemish are connected. And I knew a little bit of German so I can make those connections.
0: Right. (laughs) And I think that that's something that's incredibly important. That is another one of those things that gets overlooked, you know? And I don't think, like you said, I I like that. It's, It's not... That we have to connect knowledge that's huge, even if you have granular, something granular that's sitting in their heads. And if we can just connect it to that, right?
2: Yeah. And even if you can just make it something like, you know, I think that's why metaphors are so helpful because you begin, Mm -hmm. you give people something to, to get hold of, to grasp. Whereas if you just start with a completely new blank sheet, that's much harder for us unless you can get them really, really curious about it. But even then, you know, it still helps if there's something to build it on.
0: Right. So what are some of the other, um, and I I hate to use the word tips because that just sounds so flippant, but what are some evidence-based practices then perhaps that we can use, that we can pull from, you know, in our designs or in our virtual classes that we can say, yes, from a neuroscience perspective, from a cognitive perspective, this will help the learning stick.
2: So I think, yeah, first of all, Build in something around f- helping people find their motivation. Why do I want to learn this? But don't tell them, ask them, you know, why, why, why is this of value to you? What would be of value to you in learning this? So that you start to get their motivation, not a motivation you've, you've given them. Um, ask them what they already know. Uh, make any, any information that you provide, make it as multisensory, as concrete, as real as you can, because our brains are—you know—they're not designed to process abstract stuff. They're actually designed to process concrete stuff biologically. So make it concrete, and get the learners to do as much of the work as you possibly can. You know, if if if, if one of them has the answer, get them to share the answer because that reinforces for the person who's giving the answer. But also, it's more likely to feel connected if you're the per- if you're getting an answer from a peer who who knows who knows your world, who understands your world. So getting the learners to do the work, because it's their brains who have to change. And I think the key one is you often hear people say, well, you need, you know, you hear um, trainers in the old days, they would say, well, you need to repeat what you've just told people. You know, tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them and then repeat it. But actually why not, instead of you repeating, ask them to repeat it, because that's a recall moment for them. And recall is, is much more important than if I, re- if you repeat it, if, if the trainer repeats it, then I might recognize, oh yes, I've heard that, that's recognition. But recognition is not as strong as recall, because when I go away later on, I won't have any cues to remember that thing. I've got to be able to recall it from my own brain. Which is why the sensory stuff is so important, because it gives us more sensory hooks into the recall. I can think, well, what did I hear? What did I see? What did I feel? And I've got more entry points into that
0: memory. I think you said something that is really important right there is recognition is not as strong as recall. Yeah, that's
2: really important. That's, a, that's such an important thing.
0: Yeah, so let's dig into that. So um, those of you, you know, in the chat, how are you how are you then enhancing? Uh, recall in your environments in your virtual or live environments so are you making the delineation between recognition and the person actually recalling information which is that awareness of like you said yeah I've heard that before oh yeah that sounds familiar which is recognition right versus how are you actually using this information which then becomes recall right Yeah. Yeah. That's just so interesting. So I'd like to I'd like to know more from the group. How are you using this? But please continue. Well, I was
2: just going to say that recognition, it's like a really false friend, because when you you recognize something, it gives you that feeling of security. You know, it's like when you were doing exams when you were a kid or maybe you were doing them last week. I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, you sort of, you you you, you get your documents, you get the notes that you wrote when you're in the class or whatever. And then you look at it and you think, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yes, that's fine. I, I don't need to revise that anymore because I remember it. But actually, when you go into the place where you need to use that information, you haven't got that information in front of you. You can't see, you haven't got any cues to recall it anymore. And now you're stuck without a cue. So you need to create cues that will help you recall later on and when you actually rec- when you when you are able to recall it yourself, you've strengthened the memory again.
0: Right and is that the same as creating a mnemonic? That
2: would be one way to that would be one way to help you recall. So a mnemonic is a way of helping you know a, a mnemonic is a way of making a little short piece of information that has hooks off to multiple longer pieces of information. So mm-hmm. I use mnemonics quite a lot because I think they're quite helpful. They, they work for me and I think they work for other people. But it's, so the, so I can, I have to record for basic, for instance, I have to recall the word basic, but then because I've followed that before, then that helps me recall the other things. But I could, you know, when I first started using that basic mnemonic, I would read it and think, yes, I know that. But this time I was able to tell you, I could remember it. I could recall all the elements. But when you first start learning something, you can't recall them all unless you keep testing. So I'm really curious to know what people are doing to, to test. And Deborah's talked about job aids, but I'm curious as to whether those are job aids that test or are they job aids that tell?
0: Oh, there's a difference, isn't there? Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, that's That's interesting. So Deborah, what, I don't know how you're using job aids, uh, our job aids tell. Yeah, I think, oh, that's enough.
2: Oh, bang. so that's, that's good for recognition and, and also good for, you know, if they don't need to remember whatever it is the job aid tells, it doesn't matter, but it'll take a lot longer for that person to remember to actually be able to use that job aid information If you tell them what it is, because every time they they recognize, they go, yeah, yeah, I recognize it. Not very much work has gone into their brain there. But if you had a job aid that made them guess the answer, for instance, and then give the answer, but make them guess first, then that would actually speed up the time it would take for them to actually be able to use the answer without having the need of the job aid.
0: Well, what about if they create
2: their own job aid? Even better.
0: Okay, so is, okay. But
2: you still need to test yourself. You still need to test and recall it because you can create it once and then you can keep recognizing it. But if you walk away and you haven't got the job aid in front of you, can you still recall it?
0: Right, right. And let's see, I see, um, let's see. Asking people to apply the learning to their workspace from Fiona and how they will use it on the job. So is that is that because that's a technique that a lot of trainers use also is we ask them to apply the learning to their workplace or we ask them, how are they going to then use it? Is that sufficient?
2: It's a good start because it starts to make that connection. It creates the context but it's not sufficient for the learning until they actually apply it. So you can ask them to apply it, but will they apply it? But if they, if you, um, the rest of the question was how they used it before or how will they use it on the job? So that's, that's getting them to make a cognitive decision to do something. But until they actually do whatever it is, they haven't really, they haven't taken it to the next stage. You're still at a knowledge and a, cognitive stage you're not at an actual skill changing stage you haven't changed the behavior
0: right okay so what can they so what can we do so if we're in the classroom environment and we say here's how how are you going to use this on the job thinking about the examples that you've given us so far how can we at least take part of that journey with them because we we're not going to their workplace how can we take part of that journey to make it more sticky
2: so actually them to practice on something real in in the in in the if they're with you to practice something real so you can see how they would apply it on the job they can feel how they'll apply it on the job they can see where there may be challenges or errors that gives them more context than just asking them how they'll apply it or asking them to apply it. actually practice it in the safe environment of whether it's a classroom or a virtual classroom doesn't really matter, but actually they, they haven't really learned. I think this is the thing with learning. You can't do learning in a classroom space in a virtual space. Learning is a long extended process and it's only when you're doing things and you've repeated them multiple times that you've, you can say you've learned something.
0: Right. True. Excellent point. And I like what Fiona is kind of bouncing off of that there is we get them to apply it on a job challenge. Yes. I think yes. back to follow up. Absolutely.
2: Model. Yeah. Yeah. And then say, and how was it? And what did you find? And, you know, maybe they can video themselves and actually show you how they did it, you know, for for real. Or maybe you can get peer support, you know, peer support, you know, surprise, surprise, actually asking a manager to evaluate you on, you know, how well you've changed and how well you're doing. But yeah, Fiona's absolutely right. Apply it on the job and then check that's when the learnings I always say to people learning doesn't happen when in a training course it always happens when you go back into the workspace
0: right and I and Fatina I I see your comment there with a nursing facility and I also saw your comment earlier about using prayer beads to help you remember stuff and I thought that that was a really good comment and I I should have mentioned it way back then when I saw it pop up it's a nice tactile memory yeah exactly Exactly, which I think sort of goes into what we're talking about here too, right? So if we can take that tactile and yeah. make it work in our brain. Yeah, it's,
2: an, it's another hook, isn't it? It's another way of, of, you know, people used to tie knots in their hankies to remember things, apparently. Right, right. Um, but, it, you know, the tying of the knot and the deliberate planting of the idea there helps. And then when you go back, then you've got the knot, which is the cue, which can then, what? why did I tie that knot? Ah, because... Same with the beads.
0: Right. And her comment here about working in a nursing facility, developing hybrid programs. And we have to distinguish, oh man, it's one of those words that you always read but never ever say out loud. Uh, Didactic. Thank you. (laughs) Content from from clinical application. Um, I'd love to hear more about that, uh, Fatina. So how are you? How are you helping them with this?
1: So when I work with my nursing uh, content experts, I have to start with what are the basics that nurses to be need to know, as as far as the different body systems, as far as application, and then taking it a step further. Okay, that knowledge is great. At the same time, they have to apply that when they are caring for a client. So taking what they know is the basis and then developing simulations or developing applications with the mannequins at the site so that the students are able to take that content and apply it in a safe environment because we don't want them to kill any clients or any patients. So having them practice the skills and going through the motions of what they would do as an actual nurse.
2: I think what you're saying there, Fatina, is so important and, and you know, gets forgotten. You know, in a really practical job like nursing, people recognize that, you know, I don't want a nurse to be able to give me an injection until they've actually practiced it on an orange or whatever it is first. But in work, we give people a lot in other types of work, sorry, we give people a lot of theory and then just leadership development. We give them the theory and then we say, off you go, now you can be a leader. And it's exactly the same. You still need to have those practical experiences in a safe environment where you 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 can make a mess and you can make a mistake before you take that out into the, the real world. So I think that's a great example.
0: I agree, I agree. And it's, it's been, I wish, we, I wish we could do more of that in some of those more theoretical learnings. So and maybe we can. And but we can,
2: we can. Why, why would we just give people theory? We're running a leadership program at the moment. And one of the things we're doing, because it's a leadership program that we have to uh, hand over eventually to the client. So we've said, so all of the theory needs to be in a digital format. It needs to be somehow reproducible again and again and again. But they want live action, you know, classroom, it's going to be digital, but, you know, group sessions where people can ask questions, they can challenge, they can practice. So all of that still has to happen. That social learning, the peer learning, the learning from, you know, a facilitator who can support them in in testing things and exploring giving them real experiences that are not out in the real world. So they can, you know, they can practice their listening skills. Somebody's just talked about, it. they can practice their listening skills on each other. But all of the theory about listening skills is in the platform. Why would we waste time in an in a synchronous, you know, live? Yeah, live, not necessarily face-to-face, but in a synchronous session on giving people theory when they can, they can find that out another way. Right, and that's that whole flipped concept, flipped classroom concept, right? It- yeah, yeah. I think flip flip classroom is absolutely by let people explore for themselves what mm-hmm. they need to explore, but mm-hmm. let them and let them come together to share and to practice and to experience. But why would you just you know why do we just sit people in a room and talk at them? Mm-hmm. And and hopefully there's less of that going on now. I think, right, I think there is. I think people are beginning to get it but it's, it's recognizing that learning is a journey and you, it's not all about the content. Somebody, yeah, I think it was Fatima was talking about, you know, there's a the difference between the, the didactic content, the information piece, which is the start of learning everything, the start of skills, but they have to have that practice time and, feed, and feedback, you know, under, and, and that could be feedback from many different places, but, that understanding of where am I going? Where am I going right? Where do I need to
0: adjust? Right, right. And I, and I like that, I like that idea. And especially if we think back because the whole classroom model is relatively recent in terms of history. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's just not how people gathered information, used information in historical past. You know, so somewhere in the industrial age, we decided that, you know, this was the best way to do things and maybe it worked for them, but it's, it's not something that really works now. And I really enjoyed the idea, Stella, that you brought up about movement, you know, and I think that if we can get them to move and practice while they're moving, then I think you, you tick a lot of boxes there.
3: And
2: I think there's the sort of two things because I think you know practice needs to be highly contextual. The more contextual it is, the better it is. So if you know if if it's a skills type thing, you need to practice that in the place you're going to have the skills. But whilst you're even while you're learning concepts, if you learn a concept and you can actually use movement to introduce the concept so that you've got more like I say more memory hooks you've got you know the physical movement you've got the sounds that people might create while they're doing something you've got the vision of you know if I do the brain thing again you know that becomes a visual picture for people that makes it more real but when they're practicing you do want to practice in context Mm
0: -hmm. right totally yeah and I think that And that's why learning in the flow of work
2: works, because, you know, you're actually learning whilst you're working, but you still need the time to step back and reflect and understand. What have I just learned? You know, can I improve that? Can Mm -hmm. I do that differently next time? And I think that's one of the challenges that when we talk about learning in the flow of work, we sometimes think, well, people are just going to pick it up naturally. But actually, we're not. We do need time to take back and reflect you know, to, to do that reflection piece.
0: Right, and I, I think that that is um, something we could really work harder at is determining what is it that people actually need to know versus what do they need to source, right? So what's, mem- what's memory versus yes. what is what is a job? I'm gonna use this job aid performance management system. You only use that once a year. So give them a job aid, you're good. You don't need them to remember that. Flying a plane, especially while I'm on it. Yes, please. Yes, yes. And that's about what do they do? uh, Well, that's about what
2: do they think and what do they do? Because I think flying a plane comes with a whole part and many other things, of course, come with a whole mindset piece as well. Mm -hmm. I think the thing with learning is it's incredibly complex. There are lots of different things we're learning. We're learning to information we're learning mindsets and attitude shifts we're learning physical skills we're learning mental agility skills you know this learning is such a complex area and I think we often don't separate out those different things that we need to learn Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and they kind of all follow the same process but some of them are easier to learn than others which is why habits are so difficult to learn because to unlearn Because we've created really strong um, connections between different, a habit is a routine, and you've created really strong connections between different routines that your brain actually is processing differently to if you're learning something new. So when you've got a habit, it's mostly unconscious, and your brain is processing that in the unconscious part of your brain. Whereas if you're practicing something new and you have to think, how do I do this? That's then the, the conscious part of your brain, which is easier to easier to change because you're thinking about it than something unconscious that's much harder to change and until you bring it to consciousness
0: interesting and habit is all about triggers though isn't it you have something that triggers a habit you habits are often
2: triggered by something so you can create habits by using triggers or break them or you can break them using triggers Yes. 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 They say you can't actually ever completely get rid of a habit. That neural pathway will always still be there apparently ready to come back. But what you have to do is create new and stronger, richer neural
0: pathways instead. That sounds very insidious. It It was like creeping. It's creeping. Okay. Let's see. And I see some books coming up here. Let's see. Uh, recommend the embodied mind and the expanded mind. That sounds, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll have to add those to the resources too. And um, one of the hardest things, Maureen, one of the hardest things is to listen to learn versus using the time when listening to think. Well, that's an interesting um, I think, I
2: think what she means, one of the hardest. Yeah, I think one of the things she, I think what she means is that when you, it's hard to learn to listen. Whereas most of us, when we're listening, are actually thinking about the next thing we say.
1: Yes. Yeah,
3: listening to learn, listening to learn about someone else's
2: thinking and their experience. Right, listening, yeah, listening to learn from somebody else.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's interesting too. And I um, would like to, and running up against time. And we had this scheduled for 75 minutes because I knew we were going to get into these sorts of, of questions. So just for those of you normally on this is, is usually an hour. Today, I did schedule it for 75 minutes. So we do have just a little bit of extra time. <laughs> and so when you think about how do we help people practice their listening skills? Because I feel that that's something where people rush into, participants rush into a class with the expectation of teach me, teach me now. And it of course it doesn't work that way. So now how can we help the participants set themselves up for success? That's a really
2: interesting question, specifically around listening skills.
0: Well, just in learning, just in learning in general, you know, so I think everybody's got a different perspective on what it takes to learn what rather either right or, or off base, you know, so you do have those participants, especially those that might be in a higher position where they come in and they assume that they know and it's like, I'm here, just, just teach me, you know, I'm here, teach me. So now how do we help them? How do we help them process information or help them relearn what they think they already know about the idea of just learning in general?
2: I think it's it's often about giving people simple illustrations and again think thinking about what is it they need to learn. But sometimes simple illustrations can help. So asking people to you know, could they unravel, could they tell you how to tie a shoelace? Could they teach you to tie a shoelace? Now, most people can't tell you how to do that very easily because it's something they've they've turned into a habit. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example of how it's become a, a non-conscious ability. Mm. You can bring it back to consciousness, but it's really a non-conscious ability. You don't really think about tying a shoelace or driving a car, you know?
0: Right. Well, that might be, actually you bring up that tying a shoe. And I've used that as an exercise for communication classes. But now that you say it, perhaps if we started out classes with audiences such as this, with a short example like that, we can have one person try to tell another person how to tie their shoe. And then that never works. I've never, I've never had that exercise work. No, you can show somebody, but you can't tell them, can you? Right, exactly. And so they kind of had that aha moment. So maybe, maybe it's something like that, where people can then have that epiphany, that self epiphany of, oh, maybe my, my mind is closed to where I'm at, even though I thought it was open.
2: And I think I think with all learning, it always comes back to the first step you have to do is they've got to be motivated to want to do something different, to want to change. And if they're not, they might sit there very passively and, and you know behave well in the in the classroom, but they need to want to change. And and even when you want to change, even when you want to learn something new, you still need you need to keep that motivation going out for a long time. So, for instance, you know. I want to learn Flemish and I'm motivated to learn Flemish, but it's quite hard to do it every day regularly because sometimes it's just not as easy as speaking English for me. Well, mostly it's not as easy (laughs) as speaking English. Mm -hmm. So I have to really work hard. I have to find my motivation every day. And I think that's one of the challenges with learning that as you go along, you have to keep finding your motivation whilst at the beginning of a session or the beginning of a learning journey, you can you can be excited by all the the razzmatazz, but actually, when you're back at work and suddenly it seems like, but this isn't as this isn't as easy as the thing I used to do. Right now, it it might long term make my life easier, but right now it doesn't feel as easy. Then how do we find people's motivation to to get to keep them going? I think that's really important.
0: So, is there something from a uh, a brain? perspective that we can do to um, I guess the word I'm looking for is to nurture that or to fertilize that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Keep, keep, keep finding small rewards. So find small rewards every So, you know, we often talk about, I've got a big goal, you know, but actually what are the small goals and what are the little things you can do to reward yourself every time you do the the new thing the new behavior what's a little reward you can find for yourself and that doesn't necessarily need to be you know you give yourself a a badge it could just be something that says hey I did it congratulations pat on the back for me with language learning for instance it's you know I can actually make a real connection with somebody as opposed to making what doesn't feel I can make a real connection with somebody when I speak Flemish to them because I think I've actually done something that I couldn't do before and now I can. But also I'm kind of rewarding myself because I'm getting that they're not having to speak English to me. And for me that's a reward. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So it's about finding your own rewards, I think, for what for what you're learning, but regular rewarding is is definitely the way to help you keep that going.
0: I like that. Yeah, those, those small nudges, right? Those small nudges yeah. that propel you forward.
2: Yeah, and can so, you get nudges from the people too? You know, if you're learning something, why not tell other people, hey, I'm learning this. Can I have some support here?
0: Right. Yeah, and it's, yeah, and it's, you're right, Megan. So it's, it's shifting that mindset. It's shifting that mindset just in little bits and bobs, right? And so it's, it's little adjustments. It's little brain adjustments. Yeah. Know, that, that get us to where we, we need to be.
2: Yeah, you can't, you can't what we still can't do is we can't just shove a chip into somebody's head and have them change. Learning actually is, as you say, Shannon, it's little brain adjustments that we have to keep working at to make those connections stronger in the end. And it's multiple little brain adjustments that actually over time change who we are, you know, not just our behaviors, but actually change who we are fundamentally very often. But you can only do it one, one piece at a time because every, every time you make a brain connection, that's, that's a use, there's a chemical energy used, there's electrical energy used. If you think of, of learning as, as, as use of energy, how can we make that use of energy the most effective? And little adjustments are much easier than big ones.
0: Well, I think that that's a great place to end the conversation. You know, I think that's a great piece of advice for us all to lean on. And in the chat, I've already placed links to Stella's book. So that's in the chat already. And you guys will get a copy of that chat. So no worries if you didn't scribble it down. Uh, And then also on Stella's website, uh, Stellar Labs, you can find all of the resources there too so she's got a lot of resources for you to access so in go ahead i was just gonna say it's stellarlabs.eu stellarlabs.eu that's correct yes um so i i look forward to uh getting more information and i'll be putting all of this in an email to everybody you know with all of the resources that we've talked about and all the books that you've mentioned in the chat as well as more information to stella and if you have any extra questions for Stella, I'll put a little link there for you to ask any uh, last lingering questions that perhaps we didn't yeah. get to. So Stella, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fascinating conversation. And we I, kind of went everywhere, didn't we? but Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what this chat is all about. It's just, you know, getting the topic out there and asking these questions and taking this journey and seeing where this journey goes. And I loved where it went. And I got uh, a got some really good nuggets out of this. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank all of you. Yes, thank everybody. And I uh, look forward to seeing you guys again. Our next uh, learn something new topic is all about effective storytelling. effective storytelling, And we're going to have the gentlemen from Sage Media joining us and they're going to walk us through their storytelling process and how they develop videos for storytelling. So that ought to be really interesting. And of course, this, this week, On Friday, we do have our regularly scheduled chat, which is all about using social media for learning. So I look forward to seeing you all there. So thank you so much again, Stella. I do appreciate you joining us. It was just great fun. (laughs) Okay, thank you
1: all. Bye-bye.